This week we ride the rails and rule the markets with Railroad Tycoon. That, the news, and other inane details about my life on the Upper Memory Block Podcast. So what shall it be? Do you join the unity or do you die here? Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 12 of the Upper Memory Block podcast. I am your intrepid and plucky host, Joe, and we are back once again to plumb the depths of the DOS and free Windows XP gaming era. I got a really cool, really interesting game for you this week, but uh, first, a little update on stuff that's going on. Um, I guess some people might be interested in uh, in hearing last week, or was it? No, two weeks ago now, the a few days after the uh, the last show, my wife and I ran our 30k race. It was uh, it was quite a challenge, uh, but we made it to the end, and that that was the goal. We weren't really going for uh, for times or to win or anything like that. It was just a, a nice day out. It was a good distance. The weather was really really great. The views of uh, of Toronto, kind of from out on the lake on the uh, on on the Leslie Street Spit, as it's called was were were very nice and uh and yeah so we were quite tired afterwards of course but uh like an idiot on uh, on the monday after the race i uh, immediately signed up for the toronto waterfront uh half marathon which is in october so i actually should technically right now be uh be running and training for that but instead i decided to podcast and i will pick up that run tomorrow so that's that and uh you know despite the fact that i thought the uh the running would be over for uh, for the season, I decided that it would not be. So on to the news. A couple of interesting items this week. Uh, firstly, it looks like Command and Conquer Generals Two. If you remember, I did mention uh, Command and Conquer Generals Two as uh, kind of the future of the Command and Conquer franchise back in that episode. Well, this week we found out that it will not, in fact, be a traditional kind of retail boxed game. On August 15th, EA announced that Generals 2 would be the first free-to-play offering in a new kind of online Command & Conquer paradigm. Uh, Apparently, the game will still have all the same hallmarks of previous Command & Conquer games. However, the initial offering and the initial free offering will focus a little bit more on multiplayer with a single-player campaign coming a little bit later on. Right now, there isn't much more info than that. We don't know if there will be a for-pay tier. I... I'm cra- I, I think we'd be crazy to think that there wouldn't be, but uh, we have no idea what that would bring, what kind of, if there'd be any advantages, or if you just have access to different uh, different types of units or different uh, factions or something like that. So I will, of course, keep you guys up to date on that. It's, uh, it's definitely some interesting news and definitely an interesting uh, turn, I guess we can say, for the, uh, for the Command & Conquer franchise, and we can only hope it will be a positive turn. Secondly, some news about a game series that I have never played myself, but I definitely recognize. Uh, if you played the Broken Sword series of adventure games, kind of in the latter half of the 90s, I think the first one came out 96 or 97, something like that, uh, you may be interested to know that the creator, Charles Cecil, has started up a Kickstarter campaign to raise funding to create a new game in the Broken Sword series, which he is calling Broken Sword The Serpent's Curse. 
Uh, they're less actually, as of today, they are less than $100,000 away from their $400,000 goal. Uh, they have a little over 20 days left, so there's still a lot of time left to, to get in on that. If, uh, if you are a fan of that series, I will link the Kickstarter campaign, as I always do, in the show notes. So feel free to check that one out. Finally, I've, uh, I've been kind of somewhat semi-silently continuing to follow along the, uh, the Space Venture campaign run by the two guys from Andromeda, the, the creators of the Space Quest series. Uh, Chris Pope, who's the kind of the social media guy who's working with the two guys from Andromeda, uh, puts out, he's actually started again, they stopped for a little while, he's been putting out a podcast, and uh, he just put out a really cool and really interesting podcast episode where he interviews Lori and Corey Cole, now, Lori and Corey Cole are the creators of Sierra's Quest for Glory series of, uh, of video games. During the interview, they talk quite a bit about uh, how they met each other, uh, how they both came on board with Sierra, and eventually created uh, Quest for Glory. More importantly, though, they talk about their new game, which is called The School for Heroes, which is kind of a uh, kind of similar to what the Space Venture guys are doing. It's a, it's a game that's kind of inspired by uh, by Quest for Glory. And uh, it also has an impending Kickstarter campaign. Now, the Kickstarter campaign has not yet begun. They said it's probably going to be another few weeks until they kind of get everything together. And they want to make sure that they're not stepping on other people's toes and kind of doing what happened way back kind of at the beginning of this whole thing where, you know, they didn't want to get in when a whole bunch of other campaigns were running and kind of get on that fatigue kind of phase where people have given to all the games that they thought they were going to give to. And, oh, there's one more that I want to give to, but I'm not sure if I have the money for it and all that. So they're waiting a little bit, but I will definitely let you know when that uh, School for Heroes campaign, Kickstarter campaign, starts up. So if you did enjoy Quest for Glory, which uh, not a game series that I played a ton, I do remember playing Quest for Glory 4, I believe, and I remember having a good time with it. So if you did enjoy it, I suggest you give this interview a listen, and I will again let you know when the Kickstarter goes live. There'll be a bunch of links for Quest for uh, School for Heroes, sorry, uh, as usual, in the show notes. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for Okay, so short little uh, beginning to the show there because we have got a lot to talk about here with our main topic. So the main topic for the cast this week is Sid Meier's Railroad Tycoon. So the Railroad Tycoon series spans a total of five games, uh, first of which was called, amazingly and creatively, Railroad Tycoon. Uh, It was both developed and published by our friends at Microprose Software in the year 1990. And I think this is the third or fourth game that, uh, that I cover that's been released in 1990. I didn't realize it as, as, uh before I started doing this show, but it really looks like that 1990 itself seems like it was a pretty big year for uh, for PC gaming. I know a lot of people say, you know, 1998 was a big year. You had games like StarCraft and, and other things like that, but it looks to me like 1990 with Railroad Tycoon and Wing Commander and Loom and, uh, you know, a few others that I covered uh, is also one of those kind of uh, hallmark years for gaming. So as we generally do, the first thing I like to do is chat genre. So Railroad Tycoon is considered a business simulation game. Now we've covered quite a few simulation games over the course of the show thus far, uh, from space combat and flight sims with Wing Commander and Red Baron, over to construction management simulations with SimCity. 
Uh, business simulators relate much more closely to the construction style sims than the more visceral action based kind of more combat sims. So what a business simulation requires a player to do is manage some type of kind of, I guess we can call it an economic process. Uh, it's usually represented in the form of a business. A player is placed into uh, the position of president, owner, chief executive officer, chief operating officer, or some other kind of senior management role inside of an organization. In this role, you're, you're required to operate the organization at a wide variety of levels, making decisions involving investments, business development, management of capital assets, supply chain, research and development, production scheduling, and possibly even micromanagement of more kind of lower levels of the organization. Basically, a business simulation can require you to make contributions to any level of a corporate structure, from very high level planning and strategy, right down to pulling levers on a production line to make whatever widget it is, or provide whatever service it is that your company provides. More complex games require the player to handle a wide variety of these tasks not only, you know, in isolation, but simultaneously, kind of at times doing the job of, of multiple people kind of through your somewhat godlike uh, game interface. So pure business simulations are described as kind of as construction management simulations without any of the construction. So if you drop that, they kind of become management simulations. So for example, take SimCity and drop out all of the manual kind of city building aspects of the game and see what you're left with. So what you are left with is a game where you manage a city's finances as it grows. You set taxes, you take out and repay bonds, invest in social programs and city services, enter trade agreements with neighbors, and do your best to keep your city in the black, so to speak. That's a great example of a business simulation. And actually, that sounds like a pretty interesting game in and of itself. I wonder if, uh, if there is such a game. That'd be, that'd be pretty cool. So with that example in mind, Railroad Tycoon isn't really a pure business sim since it does have a construction component to it, but we will get to that in a little bit. Okay, story time. Like other historical simulations we've looked at, Railroad Tycoon, again, has a very rich and deep backstory. But at the same time, itself, it really has no story at all. Here's an excerpt from the game manual, which gives you kind of a half-decent overview of things. Railroad Tycoon is a game about the fascinating world of railroads. Steel tracks stretching to the horizon, promising adventure and romance. Steam, diesel, and electric locomotives, some of the largest machines man has ever built. Nations transformed by the speed and strength that locomotives could achieve eclipsing the puny power of man himself and the animals he could domesticate. The sounds of steam whistles, diesel horns, and clanging bells. A world of risk, natural disasters, poor economic times, and rival railroads. A world of opportunity, money, prestige, and fame. Railroad Tycoon puts you into this world as the president of a tiny railroad enterprise. Your railroad empire is only a dream, but you have a little money from investors and your own ability to start with. Your task is to carve your railroad empire out of this great world of opportunity. So that's pretty much where things start off. You're dropped into the world to make your way as a railroad tycoon. Now, we had an email a few shows back talking about imparting your own story and your own creativity on games that didn't have much in the way of a narrative. Now, I think that really applies to this game. 
Yes, there's a detailed world, and yes, there are rivals based on actual historical figures, but at no point is there really a narrative. There's no story events or turning points in the plot, unlike last week's game, Loom, where you're drawn along from plot point to plot point. These sim games kind of leave the story to you and your imagination. Who are you? What's your railroad about? You know, are, are you a nice guy or are you a cutthroat business person out to crush your competition? You know, do you prefer hauling cargo or do you prefer hauling passengers or do you not care? Does it matter to you as long as you make a buck? These kinds of open-ended games really, really do let you go wild with your imagination. We've seen a few games like this so far and, you know, sandbox, sandbox style games like Railroad Tycoon and like SimCity and all that do continue to exist today in, you know, the continuation of the SimCity franchise and especially in games like Minecraft and other things like that. Anyways, all that ranting to say that this game really doesn't have a hugely detailed story, but there is definitely room for you to create one for yourself. You are listening to the Upper Memory Block. All right, so on to the gameplay and what makes Railroad Tycoon what it is. As I already mentioned, the goal of the game is to run a thriving and successful railroad. Sounds simple, right? Wrong. In fact, not only is it wrong, but it is very wrong. The first thing you will learn before very long is that Railroad Tycoon is hard. Why is it so hard? Well, let's take a look and find out. Uh, in doing this show for the amount of time that I have now, I have solidly learned my lesson. I didn't even touch this game before I had at least a quick read through the 146-page manual. Uh, this thing reads like a novel, going into each aspect of the game pretty, pretty deeply. The game does have a tutorial, which starts you off with a small three-station railway, in the eastern US, so that is a good place to start. But all that aside, we should begin right at the beginning. How do we go about building a successful and profitable railway? Well, that part is deceptively simple. You lay track, you build stations, you buy trains, and then schedule and dispatch them along your rail lines. So in the original 1990 version of the game, you have a choice of four areas in which to create your rail empire. You have the Eastern USA, the Western USA, Great Britain, or Continental Europe. Uh, each of these worlds kind of approximates the geography of its real-world counterpart. Land masses, shorelines, and rivers are always kind of the, in the same area as a pretty good representation of true geography, as are the initial states and locations of all the cities and towns on the maps. However, the initial distribution of resource nodes and pre-existing industries that are around before you start the game is randomly generated each time you start anew. This way, each game is different from previous iterations. Every time you start up, you may be on the same map, but the resources that you have lying around or you know scattered around the area are always different. Also, while towns are initially created equally, their development changes based on the actions of you and your competitors in the game. So in one game, New York can be a bustling metropolis, hub you or your competitor's competition. In another game, it could just be a sleepy one-horse town. There's no kind of requirement that cities that are majorly developed and big in the real world are majorly developed and big as your game world kind of develops itself. Also, each map has some unique features and bonuses. For example, certain resources only appear on certain maps, 
And uh, another one is that on the American maps, the game encourages you to build east-west tracks as opposed to north-south ones. Any revenues earned along east-west lines are doubled. Revenues earned on north-south lines are halved. If you successfully create a transcontinental railroad, that is having a rail line that spans the width of the entire continent, you get a $1 million bonus, and that could come in very handy. And honestly, this whole thing that I just went over right now would have been very handy for me to know while I was playing the game because I did not know that. And a lot of my tracks kind of just went wherever I decided they should go. Anyways, once you choose a world to start in, you're dropped into the fray. Initially, you're the only railroad in existence. You have $1 million in capital to start off with, half of which is cold hard cash, and the other half is a loan, which you must eventually repay to your unnamed creditors. So you start off by looking around the world. This is done through a variety of views, overlays, and reports. Each view basically corresponds to a closer zoom level into an area of the world map. We start off in the regional display. Now this view shows you the entire map and any railroads that are currently operating. It's pretty much good to give you at a glance an idea of what general direction you should be building in and the size of your competition's railways. Zooming in closer brings us to the area display. The area display is very good for kind of detailed planning information. This display foregoes all the terrain features and map features and all things like that, and initially just shows you your rail line if you've built it yet, and optionally shows you information boxes for any of your existing stations with kind of their names and certain information about them that we'll get into in a little bit. Most importantly, however, it has the option to display resource nodes and industries in the area. This is insanely useful in helping you decide where to direct your track and where your station building efforts should lie. I'll talk about this more in a bit, but connection of resources up to corresponding industries is very, very important and a very important way to make money and get ahead. Finally, we zoom to the level where we have the most fun, the local display. This is the closest zoom level, and here we see terrain features, towns, and icons representing different industries that are around, different resources, and all this stuff kind of in a much more artistic and less kind of purely informational representation. Here we also mess around with most of the construction aspects of the game. In addition to being the business leader of your railroad, you're also its chief construction engineer. So the best way to start things off from zero is to connect up two neighboring towns. Now, the method of doing this isn't quite as straightforward as you think it is, and it actually took me, even with the manual, a little bit of time to figure out. If this were a game like SimCity 2000, you'd select the rail icon, You'd click and drag, and boom, you'd have a rail line. Well, Railroad Tycoon did support the mouse, laying track was oddly done using the numeric keypad. So to lay track, you place your quote-unquote construction box, which is basically a square that appears around your currently targeted map point. Uh, where you, wherever you place that construction box is where you can place your first bit of track. Now you can place that first piece of track anywhere you want but all subsequent track sections must connect to an existing track segment in a, I guess we can call it, valid configuration. So you can't make like an intersection like a road. Tracks kind of have to flow into each other with curves and, and things like that so that the trains can, can use them. Trains can't turn on a dime and the tracks have to exist in a, a realistic formation, I guess we can call it. 
So once you have your initial point chosen, which if you're starting off is usually a spot kind of near to or inside of a town, you then use the numeric keypad to lay the track in any of eight directions. So if you hit eight, that will lay track north. If you hit seven, it goes northwest. Four takes you west. Two south. Three southeast. Six east. Nine. And finally, nine takes you northeast. If you have a keyboard around, you look at the numeric keypad, you'll see how it the arrangement does make sense. When you decide to lay track between two points, there are a few considerations to keep in mind. Your main goal is to get trains to where they are going as efficiently as possible. Now to do this, you want to try and lay your track as straight as possible. You know, you want to use gentle curves such as, you know, transitioning from north to northeast instead of going north to east, boom. Uh, you know, those kinds of transitions are okay, but sharp 90 degree curves force your trains to slow down when they take them. Secondly, you want to lay your track on flat terrain. There's an option in the detail view called survey, and this shows you kind of the percent grade that is kind of the percent of incline on each map square. If, you're force, if you force your trains to climb up steep grades, again, like with the curves, they are forced to slow down. This is especially true early on in the game when you only have access to kind of the same more primitive trains which aren't very powerful. If they have to start going uphill, they will slow down a lot and that will eat into your profit margins, which is the opposite of what you want to do in this here game. So one option to get around these kind of uh, these inclines is to build a tunnel under steep inclines. This is usually though a very last resort as tunnels are quite pricey and you can usually divert around an obstacle for cheaper. However, if cutting through very steep mountains is worth the cost, then tunnels are definitely a way to go. Uh, finally, you want to minimize the number of rivers you cross. Crossing rivers requires the building of a bridge, which again, costs money. You have the option to build three types of bridges in Railroad Tycoon, and uh, they're all kind of have varying costs and various advantages and disadvantages. Firstly, you have your wooden bridge. Now, wooden bridges, wooden trestle bridges, I guess if you want to be precise, are very cheap to create. However, they are very susceptible to being washed out by storms. Secondly, we have steel bridges, and these, these tend to be a good compromise between cost and safety as they're a little bit more expensive than wooden bridges, but they are much sturdier. Finally, you have stone bridges. These are the most expensive bridges, but they almost never wash out. Now, if your bridge does wash out, it basically gets destroyed and your trains will not stop because they don't know that your bridge is washed out. So you have to stop your trains before they get to the washed out bridge, or you have to repair the bridge before they get there. Otherwise, you're going to start having some accidents on your hands. So that's that for building track. There's more to it, as you're going to hear me saying a lot in this. There's more to pretty much everything, but that's a pretty good overview of kind of the whole track building uh, process of the game. So once you have your track laid down, you need stations for your trains to stop at. Uh, there are four types of stations in Railroad Tycoon, the signal tower, the depot, the station, and the terminal. The last three station types are all similar, and these are kind of your more traditional style train stations. Each of these stations, that is depots, stations, and terminals, allow trains to stop, drop off, and load cargo or passengers, etc. Each type of station has a radius that it serves. So a depot, being the smallest traditional quote-unquote station, can service any 
resources or buildings within one map square of it. So basically that would be the eight squares that are around the depot plus the square that the depot is on itself. Now these depots are quite good to build if you're trying to service kind of a single resource or a single uh, single business such as a distant coal mine or an isolated lumber mill. Stations, the second type of station, serves anything within two squares of them. These are good for small towns or small concentrations of resources or industry. Finally, terminals serve anything within three squares. These are useful for large cities like New York or Washington, D.C., or large concentrations of resources. In addition to simply serving as a drop-off and pickup point, other improvements can also be added to your stations. So when you build your first station, you're automatically given what is called an engine shop. The engine shop is where your trains begin when you first purchase them. Uh, you can build additional engine shops at other stations, but initially you just kind of start with the one. You can also add things like restaurants and hotels to your stations to gain additional revenues from passengers coming through. And uh, you can add other things like maintenance shops, which will maintain your trains as they pass through, which you know, it does cost money, but in the long run, it lowers your train's overall operating costs. You know, just like with your car. If you don't take care of your car, eventually something major breaks on it and it costs a lot of money to fix. Whereas if you kind of maintain it every once in a while, you know, pretty regularly, that will, uh, in the long run, minimize your maintenance costs on that vehicle. We also have switching yards, which improve the speed at which cars are attached and detached from your trains. And finally, there's a variety of other improvements like cold storage, a post office, or livestock pens, which allow certain types of cargo to sit untouched in your stations much longer than they would otherwise. If you take too long picking up certain types of cargo, the cargo will kind of, I guess they refer to it as spoiling, but basically it'll time out and no longer be available. So, you know, if you have these kind of more specific station improvements, they will hang around much longer. So I did also mention signal towers. I'll, these are a, a touch different from the other stations, and I'll talk about them more in a little bit. Now, obviously, you have track and you have stations. The last thing you need are trains to travel to and from your stations along your track. So since you have an engine shop now, you can buy your first train. You can choose from a list of currently available trains, all of which have advantages or disadvantages and some combination of speed, pulling capacity, reliability, and recurring operating costs. Now, if you start the game right at the beginning of, uh, of the time frame, kind of in the late 1800s, uh, initially you only have access to a single type of train, but that quickly, quickly changes as more trains kind of come out onto the market. So this is where the true challenge of the game really does come in. You have to manage your trains, where they go, what they pick off, or sorry, what they pick up, what they drop off, and how old they are, if they should be replaced, if they should change routes, and basically anything that has to do with the operation of your railway. So what do you do with a train once you've bought it? Well, the first thing you need to do is take a look at your stations. Each station has a set of items they have, which we call supply, they also have a different list of items that they want. This is what we call demand. So without turning this into an economics course, your trains exist to take goods supplied by one station and carry it to stations which have a demand for those particular items. So here's a simple example from the game tutorial. So we've just built a station adjacent to a coal mine. One station over, there's a steel mill which demands coal. 
So to pick up cargo at a station, your train needs to have an appropriate car attached to it. The cars attached to a train are known as the trains consist. So if we want to pick up coal at station one, the train needs to have a coal car attached to it. Makes sense, right? So you open the train report and set its route to start at station one with one coal car attached. You then set its destination to station two, where it delivers the coal to the steel mill. So now the steel mill turns the coal into steel. I don't even know if coal is something that you turn into steel, but we'll just go with that because that's how the game works. So say you have a factory at the next station over, which we'll call station three. The, the factory turns steel into manufactured goods. Well, you, then you might want to drop the coal car at station two and replace it with a steel car, which will get loaded with steel and move on to station three. Station three turns the steel into manufactured goods. Maybe the people who live back in town back at station two want to buy those goods that were created in the factory. Uh, so you switch your car to a goods car, or I'm not sure if that's what it's called, but basically it's that, uh, and you return to station two to sell those goods. So that's basically the route. So sadly, since station one only serves a coal mine, it doesn't demand anything. It only supplies. Uh, so you just have, since you just have kind of a single straight track and not a loop, or anything like that. You have to kind of here bite the bullet and send the train back to station one with nothing so it can fill up the coal and restart the loop. So as your railroad's head dispatcher, which is another one of your jobs on top of being this, the financial manager, the uh, head engineer, you're also the head dispatcher, it's up to you to schedule all of your trains. So as you can see, even in this one small example, things can start to get a bit complicated. Now, usually in less than ideal situations, let's call them, stations won't be so complimentary in their supplies and demands. Uh, you know, stations will not pay for items that they don't have a demand for. There are some more universal cargoes, kind of such as passengers, mail, goods, and food that almost any station that's adjacent to a town will take. However, if you do build a station to simply service a resource node like a coal mine or you know a, a cattle ranch or a, uh, a grain farm or something like that, there may be nothing you can send that it wants. So at that point, you just kind of have to, like I said, bite the bullet and uh, and do one leg where there's no where there's no profit involved. So in addition to this, there's another complexity to your role as dispatcher. So remember those signal towers that I was talking about when we were kind of discussing the stations. Well, here is where they come in. Uh, obviously, only one train can run on one track at one time. Otherwise, there would be a collision. So when you build your initial track, it's not split up by stations and is treated by the game's engine as one track segment. Managing traffic flow across track segments is the job of train signals. So each station you build comes with its own integrated signal tower. So these signals are basically traffic lights that split up the rail into different segments. When a train leaves a station, the signal at that station turns red. So this means that no other train can enter that section of track, which is basically from this signal to the next signal, until the train that's currently in it exits the segment. So if your stations are close together, this isn't really a problem because your trains are not kind of going to catch up with each other and have to stop and wait for other trains to leave. However, if you do have a long empty stretch between two stations or you have a track 
that kind of meets and splits and things like that, you may end up in a situation where you can lose a lot of time with your train sitting in stations waiting for a train to reach its destination. This is where these signal towers come in, the kind of isolated alone signal towers. You can build independent signals between stations. This cuts up the track into smaller segments, which allows your trains to travel much closer together across the tracks. So instead of waiting for train A to reach the next station 20 miles away before train B can start moving, you can place a signal halfway between those two stations. So once train A gets halfway to the next station, train B that's following it can start moving. In addition, you also have the ability to override signals manually. But you do have to be careful because letting the wrong train through in the wrong direction can cause a major accident, which costs lots and lots of money and not to mention kills a whole bunch of fake computerized people. You are listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. So in addition to all this building and all of this, you know, train scheduling and supply and demand and all that stuff, there is also a financial management aspect to this game. I did tell you it was complicated. So there is a very simplified stock market in this game where you can use some of the funds generated by your railway to buy up stock in your own company and also the companies of your competitors. As you build out your railroad, other railroads also start up and develop at their own pace. And these companies are run by simulations of real-world railroad tycoons like J.P. Morgan, Cornelius Vanderbilt, and Jay Cook. Those are just three. There's quite a few more. Those are the three that I kind of recognize, but being that I don't have a huge background in American history because I'm not American, uh, I didn't recognize a whole bunch of the other uh, railroad tycoon, robber baron kind of, uh, kind of guys. So what does buying stock in other railroads get you? Well, firstly, you can, you can play the game, the stock market game. You can buy stock low and sell it in boom times to increase your on-hand cash. Uh, another thing you can do is buy up enough stock to gain a controlling interest in one of your competitors. This allows you some modicum of control over that competitor's railway. You can, if you own a controlling share, transfer money to them to devalue your company in case you're trying to buy up your own stock. Or you can bleed your competitor dry, transferring their treasury to yours. Uh, you can use their money to pay back your outstanding bonds. And finally, you can build track for that competitor's railway. This could be used to block other competitors since computer-controlled opponents will never build track across any other competitor's track. The other thing that's important here is I did mention you can buy your own stock. Now, the reason you would want to buy your own stock is that if you own a controlling interest in your own railway, the board of your railway will have a much more difficult time if you are all of a sudden not doing a very good job voting you out because the board always has the option. If you lose money for a certain number of years in a row, they may opt to vote you out and uh, you know then you lose the game. But if you control, if you want a controlling stock in your railway, the board cannot do that. So that's really good. That's a really good way to go there to kind of secure your position as the president of your railroad. So each game runs for 100 years with fiscal periods ending every two years. At the end of a fiscal period, you get a financial report and the value of your railroad is ranked compared to your competitors. So, you know, that's that's kind of a very, very simple overview of this game. There is so much more I can get into, but if I did, we'd be sitting here for hours and you guys would probably either turn off the podcast or kill me. 
to pique your interest, I haven't gotten into things like rate wars, where you try and undercut competition in a city they already service, uh, the introduction of new train types, new industries, the ability to build industries yourself, time-sensitive cargo, priority shipments. Like I said, this game is just huge and complex and, and infinitely challenging. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for... Ah, the tech focus. So, Railroad Tycoon, released in 1990, and while it was a revolutionary game when it came to gameplay and simulation complexity, it wasn't really pushing the envelope in system requirements. Even in 1990, it didn't have very high ones. It required an IBM PC, XT, AT, PS2, Compaq, or Tandy 1000. In 1990, this wasn't an incredibly difficult uh, thing to, you know, an incredible feat to have one of these machines. Memory-wise, it required a mere 512k of RAM. This was definitely, however, a noticeable limitation as you kind of went on in the game. Due to memory constraints, Railroad Tycoon had a hard cap of 32 trains and 32 stations active at any one time in any specific save game. Graphically, the game ran in 320 by 200 at 16 colors, kind of in a top-down, very 2D map view. The graphics do most definitely look a little bit dated at this point. Finally, the game did support the AdLib Sound Blaster and Roland MT32. There was some fun and fitting music and sound effects throughout, which did add to the experience, but as I said, were not incredibly revolutionary for, for the time when you compare it to other games that came out that year, you know, like Wing Commander with its pseudo 3D and, uh, you know, really symphonic music and, and other stuff like that. So... Anyways, great, great game with regard to gameplay and with regard to originality. Not so incredible when it came to uh, pushing the envelope of technology. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for... Okay, I am very excited to talk about the development story of this game. Railroad Tycoon starts and ends with one man who I've been very excited to talk about for a very long time, the incomparable Sid Meier and his first game company, Microprose. So I didn't know this, but Sid is a fellow Canadian. Uh, Sid Meier was born February 24th, 1954 in Sarnia, Ontario, Canada. Uh, Sarnia is basically just across the Canadian border from Detroit. And frankly, to the best of my knowledge, Sarnia is not a very compelling place to live. Uh, that might be why he ended up across the border at the University of Michigan. Uh, there, he started messing around with programming batch jobs for the university's IBM 360 mainframe and learning the Fortran programming language. Uh, his first personal computer was an Atari 800 with a whopping 16K of memory. So with that Atari, he had his first forays into game programming. Uh, he recalls vaguely in an interview building a Star Trek space game, a tic-tac-toe game, and just generally kind of messing around while he should have been doing, as he says, real work. Uh, his com first commercial game was kind of a Space Invaders-style deal for the Atari 800, which he sold in plastic bags from his local computer store. 
According to Meyer, he only sold made sold maybe five or ten copies. Shortly thereafter, though, in 1982, Meyer founded Microprose Software along with his friend, U.S. Air Force Major and avid pilot John Wild Bill Seely. Initially, due to Seely's aviation and military backgrounds, Microprose designed military and flight sim style games like Silent Service and F-19 Stealth Fighter. However, uh, over the years, you know, they they would develop these military type games. But in 1987, Microprose released Sid Meier's Pirates with an exclamation mark, a simulation game where you commanded a pirate ship pillaging the Caribbean. This is actually a game that I should uh, again. Uh, review on the show i did play the the ios version on my ipad and it was a ton of fun so uh that'd be an interesting game to look at but anyways meyer wanted to put his name in the title of the game since it was such a departure from the company's earlier flight sim and military type games Uh, meyer had a lot of fun working on pirates and after the release of f-19 stealth fighter in 1988 he decided that he wanted to focus more on strategy games Uh, He states that he felt he had put everything that he thought was cool about flight sims into F-19, and he was pretty much done with them, at least for the time being. So he formed his own little skunkworks team within Microprose, which he named MPS Labs, which I assume means Microprose Software Labs. And uh, MPS Labs proceeded to start work on a very different kind of strategy game. So the Railroad Tycoon design team consisted of Sid Meier, Bruce Shelley, and Max Remington, all working at MPS Labs. At the time of its release, Meyer claimed that Railroad Tycoon was the most memorable game of his career. He felt that trains were cool, uh, and he was challenged by the task of building them into a fun and interesting game. The inspiration for Railroad Tycoon came from several different sources. Uh, One was playing 1830, which was a board game all about U.S. railroads. Uh... They would play this game kind of during after-hours gaming sessions at the Microprose offices. After doing that, Sid worked up a system for building and operating model railroads that looks like something right out of a model railroading magazine. Uh, In spring 1989, Bruce Shelley wrote a proposal for a railroad game based on his experience with railroad board games, his interest in railroad history, and uh, the play of innovative new kind of sandbox or God-style computer games you know, such as SimCity that were kind of becoming all the rage. The railroad game idea kind of kicked around the team for and then the Microprose offices for some time uh, until a burst of activity during a vacation in August 89, where Sid built the first working prototype. The prototype was pretty basic and pretty crude, but the potential was there. Another project they had underway at the time was put on hold, and development of Railroad Tycoon went full-time based on Sid Meier's prototype. A big central design problem that they had in kind of coming up with the way the game was going to work was choosing the scope of the game. Sid's initial concept was basically a model railroading game, which, uh, you know, the team liked, but they thought they could do more. Bruce's proposal posed the player as the president and guiding force of a railroad. But it kind of left out the the tycoon competition so popular in that 1830 board game they played. The dilemma was how much to include in one game. In the end, much of the lower end details, such as throwing individual track switches and things like that, were dropped, and the higher end, being you as the president of your own railroad, was kind of made the prime focus 
of the game. The team found that running a big railroad and having to fight off rivals was more interesting than switching tracks and loading passengers and making sure your trains are on time. Uh, Train operations, as we've seen, though, weren't completely dropped out. The system of dispatching and signal towers was implemented. While the majority of signaling was automated, like we saw, uh, some of it could be manually overridden, which still did give the player the feel of directly controlling you know, the day-to-day operations of moving the trains around. So Railroad Tycoon was released in 1990. It was rated 5 out of 5 by Dragon Magazine and was hailed by reviewers as one of the best games of the year. It was a, a runaway hit with simulation aficionados and you know maybe people were more uh, were more patient in those days and uh, and didn't find it quite as difficult but uh, suffice it to say whether they did or they didn't it was a great success. So three years later in 1993 Railroad Tycoon Deluxe was released. This improved version I was putting improved in quotation marks uh, boasted new maps it improved graphics and uh, also improved sound, and there were a whole whack of other new features which should potentially have made this game very great. Unfortunately, many of these new features also introduced a host of bugs and performance issues on a computer of the time moving to the main map screen would slow the game down to a crawl. So because of this, the game sold actually quite poorly. By this time, Sid Meier was heavily into other projects. My assumption is Civilization, but... Uh, you know, because of that, he had little to do with this updated release, and uh, you know that may have been one of the reasons that uh, it wasn't quite as uh, as interesting and revolutionary as the uh, as the first one was. So by 1998, Microprose had been bought and sold quite a few times, and a company called Pop Top Software had somehow acquired the rights to Railroad Tycoon. Railroad Tycoon two and three were released by this group with no input from Sid Meier whatsoever. He had been moved on to creating uh, Firaxis, his second company, Firaxis Games. Uh, While these games do look much nicer and are much more approachable than uh, the original Railroad Tycoon and even Railroad Tycoon Deluxe, they were most definitely dumbed-down versions of the very complex and deep simulations that Meyer had created. And the stock market aspect of the game became completely optional and you know just a whole bunch of other things that uh, that really did take away from, from the richness of the simulation. Luckily, however, by 2006, Firaxis, Meyer's second company, was able to reacquire the rights to, uh, to the franchise and released Sid Meier's Railroads, the first game in the series to have his involvement since the original. The game was in full 3D and focused much more on economics than the previous two sequels. It also had a very interesting head-to-head, real-time multiplayer component. So where can we get Railroad Tycoon today? Well, back in 2006, like I just mentioned, with the release of Railroads, the deluxe version of the original game was released for free. Well, it isn't up on the Railroads site for download anymore. You still can find the the zip file online in a few places. The whole game's about 15 megs. Uh, I'll link it in the show notes. It obviously does need to run in DOSBox, but uh, it runs pretty much without issue. Uh, Also, luckily, the manual and copy protection documents are included. Uh, If you fail the copy protection, you can still play the game, but you can only ever have two active trains running on your map at once, so the game becomes basically uh, unplayable. What you have to do for the copy protection is they give you kind of a list of, I think it's something like 10 or 12 different trains. They show you a picture 
of one on the screen and you have to figure out which train is which. It's not really that bad, but uh, it is still a hoop to jump through. Uh, Railroad Tycoon 2 and 3 are available on Steam for $5 and $10 respectively. And uh, Railroads was available on Steam at one point, but it doesn't seem to be up there right now unless um, I'm having some difficulty finding it. Anyways, if anyone knows where you can get Railroads, because I'd be very interested to try a more modern game like this with Sid Meier's input, uh, you know, drop me an email and, uh, and let me know or post on a Facebook group or, or whatever. And if I do figure it out, I will most definitely uh, post that somewhere. Have you ever experienced uncontrollable bouts of geekdom? If so, the Anomaly podcast may be right for you. In clinical studies, Anomaly's interviews, convention reports, commentary on geek culture, games, sci-fi and fantasy television, literature, and film provided a feeling of fullness while promoting health for optimal geekiness. The Anomaly podcast is not suitable for all people. Only geekily active cool chicks with a healthy sense of humor should listen. Geekily active cool guys should listen too. Anomaly has resulted in sudden fits of squee. Broad smiles may appear without warning and could become permanent. The most common side effects of Anomaly are unconsciously joining in the Gamma Quadrant golf clap, out loud, at work, to the amusement of co-workers, and attempting to interject opinions aloud to hosts who can't hear the listener. But in all cases, the benefits outweigh the risks. Ask your anomaly if you're healthy enough for entertainment of this caliber. You don't need a doctor's messy handwriting to obtain a free subscription. Anomaly is available over the counter at Stitcher Radio and in the iTunes, Zune, and Blackberry stores. You can also stream episodes of Anomaly and Anomaly Supplemental at anomalypodcast.com. That's A-N-O-M-A-L-Y podcast.com. Just one one-hour episode provides 24 hours of relief and never leaves a bad taste in your mouth. Music by Jewelbeat.com. Okay, big question of the cast. Does Railroad Tycoon hold up today? Well, I said it at the beginning of the show, and I will say it again. This game is hard. You must read the manual. In fact, you shouldn't just do the included tutorial. You really do need to read the whole manual. This is a very deep and immersive simulation. It is very detail-oriented and rewards careful planning and micromanagement. This is not a pretty game. The graphics do look quite dated, and uh, I do feel like if this is a game that you loved back in 1990, then you will still love it today. If you never played it and you have no nostalgia and memories of it and all that, it probably won't hold up for you on its own merits. I played this game for quite a few hours in researching the podcast, tried quite a few different approaches, and I personally just could not make money in this game. I moved over to Railroad Tycoon 2, and that game was quite different. There was much less scope to it, and I had a much easier time staying out of the red. So for me, as deep as the original Railroad Tycoon is, it just doesn't do it for me. I feel weird saying this, but there's too much gameplay in this game. I got buried under all the things I needed to do. There's difficulty settings making, you know, doing things like making your competitors less aggressive, making signaling totally automatic, and uh, allowing any cargo to be delivered anywhere. So I played with kind of a real economy and with signaling, but with friendly competition. 
And so maybe I jumped in too far, maybe playing a little more time at the lower difficulties would change my mind. But honestly, just right from the start, even after going through the tutorial and reading the manual, I just got totally overwhelmed. This is not a bad game, and it definitely does deserve its place in history. In fact, it's it's a great game. It's just not my kind of game. So for me personally, doesn't hold up. But um, as I usually say, give it a try. The game is free. Make up your own mind. So that's that for another show. Thank you, as usual, to everyone for listening. Thank you to everyone who's been listening the whole you know for the whole run of the thing. Thank you to anyone who just found the show. Uh, I didn't receive any emails this week, and you guys know I love getting them. So if you do want to drop me a line, either about Railroad Tycoon or Loom, which I haven't heard much about, or uh, or anything else, any of your other gaming memories, whether I covered it or not, and all that, you can send email or preferably audio comments to podcast at umbcast.com. And as usual, I want to thank Rick Moyer for his wonderful audio work. You can find him and his stuff over at moyermultimedia.com. You can check out the show notes and other related blog posts at uh, umbcast.com. You can join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash umbcast. Follow the show on Twitter at twitter.com slash umbshow. And me personally at twitter.com slash billybob476. Uh, you can subscribe to the show on iTunes, and of course, you can stream us live at Stitcher Radio. The next week, I'm going to be covering a game series that I am absolutely nuts about, Mech Warrior, Big robots with big guns. It's hard to go wrong there, so I'm really excited, and I know a lot of you guys like it, so drop me your emails all about Mech Warrior and Mech Warrior 2 and Mech Warrior 2 Mercenaries and all that stuff. So see you next time right here for Mech Warrior in the upper memory block. Battle control terminated. You've been listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast with Joe Mastroianni. For more information on the podcast, visit umbcast.com. That's umbcast.com. Write to Joe today at podcast at umbcast.com. That's podcast at umbcast.com. So what shall it be? Do you join the unity or do you die here? Join us.